0: Section twenty five of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug, Perth, Western Australia. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section twenty five Gippsland Pioneers. At the Old Port. Most of them were Highlanders, and the news of the discovery of Gippsland must often have been imparted in Gaelic, for many of the children of the mist could speak no English when they landed. Year after year, settlers had advanced farther from Sydney along the coastal ranges, until stations were occupied to the westward of Twofold Bay. In that rugged country, where no wheeled vehicle could travel, bullocks were trained to carry produce to the bay and to bring back stores imported from Sydney. Each train was in charge of a white man with several native drivers. But rumours of better lands towards the south were rife, and Captain McAllister of the Border Police equipped a party of men under Macmillan to go in search of them. Armed and provisioned, they journeyed over the mountains under the guidance of the faithful native Friday. And at length from the top of a new mount pisgah beheld a fair land watered throughout as the paradise of the lord descending into the plains macmillan selected a site for a station left some of his men to build huts and stockyards and returned to report his discovery to MacAllister. slabs were split with which walls were erected but before a roof was put on them the black suddenly appeared And began to throw their spears at the intruders. One spear of seasoned hardwood actually penetrated through a slab. The men, all but one, who shall be nameless, seized their guns and fired at the blacks, who soon disappeared. The white men also disappeared over the mountains. The rout was mutual. But the country was too good to be occupied solely by savages, and when Macmillan returned with reinforcements, he made some arrangements the exact particulars of which he would never disclose. He brought cattle to his run, and they quickly grew fat. But civilised man does not live by fat cattle alone, and a market had to be sought. Twofold Bay was too far away, and young Melbourne was somewhere beyond impassable mountains. Macmillan built a small boat, which he launched on the river, and pulled down to the lakes in search of an outlet. He found it, but the current was so strong that it carried him out to sea. He had to land on the outer beach and to drag his boat back over the sands to the inner waters. He next rowed westward with his man Friday to look for a port at Corner Inlet, and he blazed a track to the Albert River. Friday was an inland black. He gazed at the river which was flowing towards the mountains and said, What for stupid Yalik? Yen Yall along a bulger. Footnote. Yalik, river. Bulger Mountain. Macmillan tried to explain the theory of the tides. One big yellick down there, push him along. Come back by and by. And Friday saw the water come back by and by. They reached the mouth of the river on February the 1st, 1841, saw a broad expanse of salt water, and Macmillan concluded that he had found a port for Gippsland. Ten months afterwards, Jack Shay arrived at the port. He had first come to Twofold Bay from Van Diemen's land, and nothing was known about his former life. That's nothing to nobody, he said. He was a bushman, rough and weather-beaten, with only one peculiarity. The quart pot, which he slung to his belt, would hold half a gallon of tea, while the other pots only held a quart and that was the reason why he was known all the way from Monaro to Adelaide as Jack of the Quart Pot. He had arrived rather late on the previous evening, and this morning, as he sat on a log contemplating the scenery, his first conclusion was that the port was not flourishing. There was not a ship within sight. The mouth of the Albert River was visible on his right, and the inlet was spread out before him, shining in the morning sun. About a mile away on the western shore was One Tree Hill. Towards the south were mud banks and mangrove islands, through which the channel zigzagged like a figure of eight, and then the view was closed by the scrub on Sunday Island. There was a boat at anchor in the channel about a mile distant, in which two men were fishing for their breakfast, for there was famine in the settlement, and a few pioneers left in it were kept alive on a diet of roast flathead on the beach three boats were drawn up out of reach of the tide and looking behind him jack counted twelve huts and one store of wattle and dab the store had been built to hold the goods of the port albert company it was in charge of john campbell and contained a quantity of axes tomahawks saddles and bridles a grindstone some shot and powder two double-barrelled guns nails and hammers and a few other articles but there was nothing eatable to be seen in it. If there was any flour, tea or sugar left, it was carefully concealed from any of the famishing settlers who might, by chance, peep in at the door. Outside the hut was a nine-pounder gun on wheels, which had been landed by the company for use in time of war, but until this day there had been no hostilities between the natives and the settlers. From time to time numbers of black faces had been seen among the scrub, but so far, no spear had been thrown, nor hostile gun fired. The members of the company were Turnbull, MacLeod, Rankin, Broderib, Horndon, and Orr. Soon after they landed, they cleared a semicircular piece of ground behind their huts to prevent the blacks from sneaking up to them unseen. Near the beach stood two she oak trees marked, one with the letters M.M. 1 Feb. 1841. The other, 2 Ma, 1841, and the initials of the members of the Port Albert Company. Behind the huts, three hobbled horses were feeding, two of which had been brought by Jack Shay. A gaunt deerhound with a shaggy coat, lame and lean, was lying in the sun. There was also an old cart in front of one of the huts, out of which two boys came and began to gather wood and to kindle a fire. They were ragged and hungry and looked shyly at Jack Shay. One was Bill Clancy and the other had been printer's devil to Hardy of the Gazette and was therefore known as Dick the Devil. They had been picked up in Melbourne by Captain Davy, who had brought them to Port Albert in his whaleboat. Their ambition had been for a life on the ocean wave and a home on the rolling deep as heroic young pirates. But at present they lived on shore and their home was George Scutt's old cart. A man emerged from one of the huts carrying a candle-box, which he laid on the ground before the fire. Jack observed that the box was full of eggs, on the top of which lay two teaspoons. A man was Captain David, usually known as Davy. He said, I was going to ask you to breakfast, Jack, but you have been a long time coming, and provisions are scarce in these parts. Don't you make no trouble whatsoever about me, said Jack. Many's the time I've had short rations, and I can take potluck with any man. You'll find potluck here is but poor luck, replied Davy. I've got neither grub nor grog, no meat, no flour, no tea, no sugar, nothing but eggs, but thank God I've got plenty of them. There are five more boxes full of them in my hut, so we may as well set to at once. Davy drew some hot ashes from the fire and thrust the eggs into them, one by one when they were sufficiently cooked he handed one and a teaspoon to jack and took another himself saying we shall have to eat them just as they are there's plenty of salt water but i haven't even a pinch of salt why davy there's plenty of salt right before your face didn't you never try ashes mix a spoonful with your egg this way and you'll find you don't want no better salt right you are jack it goes down grand said davy after seasoning and eating one egg then to the boys, here you kids, take some eggs and roast them and salt them with ashes, and then take your sticks and try if you can knock down a few parrots or wattle birds for dinner. But don't you go far from the camp, and keep a sharp lookout for the blacks, for you can never trust em, and they might poke their spears through you. But Davy, asked Jack, where is the port and the shipping? And where are all the settlers? There don't seem to be many people staring about here this morning. Port and shipping be blessed, said Davy. As for the settlers, there's only about half a dozen left, with these two boys and my wife and Hannah Scutt. We don't keep no regular watch, and meal times is of little use, unless there's something to eat. I landed here from that whale boat on the 30th of last May, and I've been waiting for you ever since. In a few weeks we had about a 150 people camped here. They came mostly in cutters from Melbourne, looking for work or looking for runs. They said that men were working for half a crown a day without rations on the road between Leodet's beach and the town. But there was no work for them here, and as their provisions soon ran short, they had to go away or starve. I stopped here, and have been starving most of the time. Some went back in the cutters, and some overland. Broadribbon Hobson came here over the mountains with four Port Phillip blacks, and they decided to look for a better way by the coast. I landed them and their four blacks at the head of Corner Inlet. They were attacked by the Western Port Blacks near the River Tarwin, but they frightened them away by firing their guns. The four Port Phillip Blacks who were carrying the ammunition and provisions ran away too, and the two white men had nothing to eat for two or three days until they made Massey and Anderson station on the Bass, where they found their runaway blacks. William Pearson and his party were the next who left the port. They took the road over the mountains and lived on monkey bears until they reached Massey and Anderson's. McClure, Scott, Montgomery and several other men started next. They had very little of their provisions left when I landed them one morning at One Tree Hill there over the water. They were 14 days tramping over the mountains and were so starved that they ate their own dogs. They came back in a schooner but I think some of them will never get over that journey. I tell you Jack, it's hard to make a start in a new country with no money, no food and no livestock, except Scott's old horse and that lame deerhound. Poor Ossian was a good dog and used to run down old man kangaroo for us until one of them gave him a terrible rip with his claw and he has been lame ever since. For eight weeks we were living on roast flathead and I grew tired of it. And so on the 17th of last month I started down the inlet in my whaleboat. I went to Lady Bay to take in some firewood. I knew the mutton birds would be coming to the islands on the 23rd or 24th, but I landed on one of them on the 19th, four or five days too soon, and began to look for something to eat. There were some pig faces, but they were only in flour, no fruit on them. I could find nothing but penguins' eggs, and I put some of those in a pot over the fire, but they would never get hard if I boiled them all day. There is something oily inside of them and how it gets there I never could tell. You might as well try to live on rancid butter and nothing else. However, on November the 23rd, the mutton birds began to come in thousands and then I was soon living in clover. I had any quantity of hard-boiled eggs and roast fowl for I could knock down the birds with a stick. But Jack, what have you been doing since I met you the year before last? You had a train of packed bullocks and a mob of cattle looking for a run about Mount Buninyong. Did you start a station out there for Imlay? Nah, I didn't. Found a piece of good country, but Pettit and the Coggles hunted me out of it. So Imlay sold the cattle and went back to Twofold Bay. Then Charles Lyonard offered me a job. He was taking a mob of cattle to Adelaide. But he heard there was no price for them there, so he took a station up the Pyrenees. 17 miles beyond Parson Irvine's run at the amphitheatre. I was there about 12 months. My hut was not far from a deep water hole, and the milking yard was about 200 yards from the hut. The wild blacks were very troublesome, They killed three white men at Murdering Creek, and me and Francis, Clark's manager, hunted them off the station two or three times. The blacks were more afraid of Francis than of anybody else, as beside his gun he always carried pistols, and they could never tell how many he had in his pockets. Cockadoo Bill's tribe drove away a lot of Parson Irvine's sheep and broke a leg of each sheep to keep them from going back. The Parson and Francis went after them, and one of a stockman named Walker and another a big fellow whose name I forget. They shot some of the blacks, but the sheep was spoiled. Here was a tame black fellow we called Alec and two gins living about our station. And he had a daughter we called Piccaninny Charlotte, 10 or 11 years old, who was very quick and smart and spoke English very well. One morning when I was in the milking yard, she came up to me and said, You look out, Cockatiel Bill got your axe under his rug, sitting among a lot of lubbers, chop you down when you bring up milk in buckets. I had no gun with me, so I crept out of the yard and sneaked through the scrub to get into the hut and through the back door keeping out of sight of Bill and the Lubbers, who were all sitting on the ground in front of the hut. We had plenty of arms, and I always kept me double-barrelled gun loaded and hanging over the fireplace. I crept inside the hut, reached down for the gun, and peeped out of the front door, looking for Bill. The Lubbers began yabbering. In an instant, Bill dropped his rug and the axe, leapt over the heads of the women, and was off like a deer. I took a flying shot at him with both barrels. His lubber went about afterwards among the stations complaining that Jack Quart Pot shot Cockatoo Bill and Parker, government protector, made inquiries about him. I saw him coming towards my hut and I said to Pickinny Charlotte, no talk, no English, no nothing. When Parker asked her if she knew anything about Cockatoo Bill, she shammed stupid and he couldn't get a word out of her. It was that cave with a spyglass that's john campbell the company's storeman he's looking for a schooner every day he would have gone long ago like the rest but he does not like to leave the stores behind here yeah, mr campbell wouldn't you like to take a roast egg or two for breakfast there's plenty for the whole camp i will davy and thank ye who are the men in the boat and the channel they George scott and patley jim fishing for their breakfast they were hungry i reckon and went away before i brought out the eggs well they might have had a feed While the men were roasting their eggs, their eyes wandered over everything within view, far and near. On land and sea, their lives had often depended on their watchfulness. The sun was growing warm, and there was a quivering haze over the waters. While glancing down the channel, Davy observed some dark objects appearing near a mangrove island. He pointed them out to Campbell and said, "'What kind of birds are they? Do you think they are swans?' can't think what else they can be,' said Campbell. They have not got the shape of birds, and they don't seem smoothy like swans, but go jerking along like big coots. Take a look through the glass, Davy, and see if we can make them out. Davy took a long and steady look and said, I'm blowed if they ain't black fellows in their canoes. They are poling along towards the channel. One, two, three. There's a dozen of them or more. I can see their long spears sticking out, and they are after some mischief. The tide is on the ebb, and they are going to drop down with it and spear those two men in the boat. And they are both landlubbers, and haven't even got a gun with them. We must bear a hand and help them. Get your guns, and we'll launch the whaleboat. John Campbell steered, and Shay and Davy pulled as hard as they could towards the canoes, which were already drifting down with the current. The two fishermen were busy with their lines, every now and then pulling out a fish and baiting their hooks with a fresh piece of shark. They never looked up the channel nor guessed the danger that was every moment coming nearer, for the blacks as yet had not made the least noise. At last Campbell saw several of them seizing their spears and making ready to throw them, so he fired one of his barrels, and Davy stood up in the boat and gave a cooey that might have been heard at Sunday Island, for when anything excited him on the water, he could be heard shouting and swearing at an incredible distance. He yelled at the fishermen, Boat ahoy! Up, anchor, you lubbers, and scatter. Don't you see the blacks after you? The natives began paddling away as fast as they could towards the nearest land, and Davy and Shay pulled after them. But the blacks soon reached the shore, and taking their spears, ran into the nearest scrub. When the whaleboat grounded, there was not one of them to be seen. Davy said, They are watching us not far off. You two keep a sharp lookout, and if you see a black, face fire at it. I'm going to cut off the fleet. He rolled up his trousers, took a fishing line, waded out to the canoes, and tied them together, one behind another, leaving a little slack between each of them. He then fastened one end of the line to the whaleboat, shoved off, and sprang inside. The blacks came out of the scrub, yelling and brandishing their spears, a few of which they threw at the boat, but it was soon out of their reach. Thus a great naval victory had been gained and the whole of the enemy's fleet captured without the loss of a man. Nothing like it had been achieved since the days of the great Gulliver. The two fishermen had taken no part in the naval operations, and when the whaleboat returned with its train of canoes like the tail of a kite, Davy administered a sharp reprimand. Why didn't you two lubbers keep your eyes skinned? I suppose you're asleep, eh? You ought to have up anchor and pulled away, and then the devils could never have got near you. "'Look here!' holding a piece of bark. "'That's all they got to paddle with in deep water, "'and in the shallows they can only pole along with sticks.' Pateley Jim had been a prize-runner in Yorkshire, and trifles never took away his breath. He replied calmly, "'You read, Davy. we're a bit sleepy, "'but we're quite weak and new. "'Keep your shout-on, and we'll do better next time.' When the canoes, which were built entirely with sheets of bark, were drawn up on the beach, Nothing was found in them but a few sticks, bark paddles, and a gown, a lilac-cotton gown. That goon, said Campbell, has belonged to some white woman they devils have murdered. There's no settler near than Jamison, and they man have broke the goon all the way frae the bass, But Campbell was mistaken. There had been another white woman in Gippsland. End of section 25